Well, this is our last one, and so we're going to come full circle. Uh, whatever, how many weeks ago, four or five weeks ago when we began, we began with um, how endings in the four Gospels never come to any kind of strict closure, but Gospels always end in hope, and hope is an end in itself, even though hope is not in a an event or a scenario, which is very different than how we normally understand stories, movies, you know, novels, all that. Because usually there is an ending, right? And we don't want to give it away. I won't, I'm not going to tell you how the book ends, right? Okay. What we find out in the Gospels is that the endings are different than what we kind of normally think about four endings, and then that obviously applies then to our own life. So the hope aspect, though, we're going to now, we're going to mainly talk about that today. What, what does it mean for, to have hope? Um, and, and ironically, I didn't plan it this way, but our prayers this morning, we mentioned hope, I think, almost every single time, which I thought, wow, that's kind of interesting. Um, okay. So just a brief synopsis of the four gospel endings. Uh, for those who were here or not here, that's okay too. Hopefully this will make sort of sense. Every ending has an inclusio, which is a, like a, a literary mechanism or tool which will send everyone back to the beginning of the story. So at the end of every resurrection account, there's an echo of the beginning, which is on purpose where um, they want the, you know, the writers want you to start the gospel over and read the gospel not through your own eyes, but through Christ's eyes, the death and resurrected eyes of Jesus. So there is no closure, but every ending is hopeful. And the reason why there's no closure is because every ending has a suspended ending. That's another kind of literary term where it invites the, the, the people, members, church members, to take up the story and participate in the ending. So I think we've always already given the example before of how, you know, we watch a movie and we say, oh, I didn't like that ending. What happened? Um, and then you kind of make up your own scenarios. You know, anybody lost fans, right? I know Lindsay was. Right, the ending of the Lost finale, you know, the, the series finale, there was some closure, but we thought, you know, what happened to the black smoke? What happened to this and that? And, and we have all these theories. Uh, the Gospels are, are, are similar to that, obviously on a much different level, and we'll talk about that in a second in, in the relation of hope. The other aspect, too, though, is that when you have a suspended ending and, and the gospel writers want you to participate in the ending, and doing that, they actually have you create your own beginning. So, um, of your new life. Your new life based on this story, on the gospel. And I want to mention John, because this is going to be important, I, we finished last week real quickly in the fact that Jesus shows up at the ending of John, but he never leaves. Where in Mark, he never shows up, but Matthew and Luke, there's this kind of departure. John, he shows up and he just never leaves. And that's important because in John, the, the, the ending is no longer imminent. 
the end is eminent. <laughs> Play on words there. It's, uh, it's not like it's coming. It's here. It's in the midst. And, but the story is incomplete, though, in a different respect, where unless the disciples obey, you know, they cast their nets, they're not going to receive the abundance unless Peter tends the sheep and unless the readers respond and believe. So there is an aspect of it being unfinished, but not necessarily in the temporal sense or in the future. Okay, yeah, that's another important thing. All right. Obviously, there's a resurrection album. And this is something, too, right? There's interesting similarities between all of them, but there's also striking differences. So as we think about our own endings, since we're Christians and we believe in our Lord, there will be very interesting similarities between our stories, and then there will also be very big differences. But yet, those differences are not reasons to discount your own story or, you know, uphold somebody else's story. In fact, I mean, there's, there's kind of contradictions even in the resurrections. You know, I think we mentioned it last week where, you know, Mary said, don't, you know, Jesus said, don't touch me, Mary. But then he says to Thomas, you know, touch me. You know, there's these, there's these strange things. You know, he appears, he disappears, you know. So that our stories, as we, we kind of get enveloped into the story of Jesus, will have these similarities, differences, and then sometimes we'll have completely opposite experiences to other people. All right, and that all points to the fact that there's different ways the, the, the disciples experience the resurrection. And in those differences, it meant that each disciple had a new beginning, a specific beginning for them. Penny. I think it is curious because John's gospel was written much later than everybody else's. That's the theory. Yeah, right, 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 yep. That he would still, he has a longer view then of what happened after the resurrection. Right. He would still have this kind of incomplete ending of unless the people believed and unless people believed. Yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And that, this goes to obviously the Gospel of John or John or any of the other Gospel writers wouldn't articulate it this way. But what they're uh, coming to terms with is is the Gospel information, or is it is it informative or performative? Because if it's if it's information, then it's regulated to every other thing that's out there. And if we think about the early church, that would be mythology, uh, philosophy, which is different than our understanding of philosophy today, but nonetheless doesn't really matter, um, or even then other religions itself. And um, But if it's performative, that means that it, our lives are changed. Like this story isn't just a nice story, but it actually changes us, informs us, and since we are all living and hoping for tomorrow, our stories then themselves are, you know, we're not finished. So what John does is says, it is finished, right? Jesus on the cross, it is finished. But the, um, that, that is a certain sense of certainty in our hope, 
which then directly affects the way we live now. So, you know, I mean, think about it in this way. Um, preschool chapel this morning. Uh, I talked, uh, Heavenly Father, 1 John chapter 3, 1. Little children. Isn't it, or, uh, isn't it great to be called children of God? And so we are. And it goes on to this like access that we have to the Heavenly Father. My children, you know, they, they can walk into my office anytime. They have access to my office. So they, in a certain sense, when they come here to St. John, they have this hope that they will see me. And they have a great confidence in that because it is finished. I mean, I've already told them that. I've, I've already said that this is, how, this is what happens. And, um, and so even though they've experienced this, this hope, substantively, each time they come in, they, have this, they do have this kind of hope in between the front door and then my, the office of my, my door's office is my office door. So that would be the same thing then in terms of John, is that Jesus has died and resurrected. There is this, now things have changed. But yet we will live tomorrow. And living in tomorrow because of this reality that's already happened, we live tomorrow differently. We, have a, we live in no fear. That's again, that's in 1 John 2. 1 John also, chapter 4, perfect love casts out all fear. So, um, so that's what John's doing in that respect. He's taking this uh, story and I, I don't want to say applying it, but, well, he is, but yeah. Anyways, all right, so um, on Christian hope. Faith is hope. I don't know if we ever think about that. We think about our faith that we have, but if you have faith, you have hope. Because in the New Testament, hope and faith are, are connected. I mean, that's just the way things are. And I have a litany of verses right there, but um, well, I'll turn to Hebrews. I, I, we're going to spend a little time in Hebrews today because of one verse, and that's Hebrews chapter 11. But Hebrews 10... 22 and 23, if you have the Rad Pew Edition Bible, it's page uh, 1007. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, which hopefully that sounds like the liturgy a little bit. That's from the TLH. So let us draw near with a true heart and full, of a, and full assurance of faith with hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. So hope and faith are connected there. If you read the rest of the verses, you know they'll all exemplify how faith and hope are um, so, so organically connected that you can't have hope Hope. You can't have faith without hope. And the Ephesians 2.12 is the, the, the opposite. So it, it shows how if you have no faith, you have no hope. So the thing is, is that we talk about faith, right? Hey, faith in God and how that changes our life, access to the Heavenly Father, eternal life. But yet, 
on the same respect, hope is the same way. And so, you know, does hope change things? And I think it does. I mean, you enter into a situation that's hard in your life, whether it be over death, um, loss of job, you know, some kind of sickness. The way you you are able to kind of live through the day, get up out of the bed, is because of hope. So the Christian faith, you know, we have to ask ourselves, is the Christian faith for us today a life-changing, life-sustaining hope? Or is it just information, which in the meantime we have set aside and which now seems to us to have been superseded by more recent information? That's the thing. When... So how does that play out? Let's say someone dies. Someone who shouldn't have died. You have this new information, and what often happens, right? You've lost hope in God or faith in God. Or you've prayed so hard to God that, you know, you get a job and you don't get one. So now this new information has superseded this old information. That, that's completely wrong. That's not how we see the Christian faith, and that's not how we see the Bible. Because the Bible is performative, it, it's or creative. There's a variety of ways you can say this. Because when God speaks, it happens. You know, um, and that happens obviously in the liturgy. When when you bring a baby, I baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They came in as a sinner. They leave as a saint. Uh, it happens in marriage, where God says, "I pronounce you husband and wife." You enter as a single person. You leave as a married person. Happens in confession absolution where you're a sinner. Christ says, "I forgive you." Then you're for, you're forgiven. Um, and then you know, obviously, it happens in the Eucharist. It happens in all the, the sacramental realities of the church. So, but that performative word doesn't just stay within the liturgy. It happens. It affects the rest of our lives. And that's the overabundance of what hope does. It. We don't only have hope in the church service, but we have hope waking up in the morning. Mary. I have seen that this will happen. Right. And God gave promise from it. And when my brother died, it was a choice between that I felt I gave up for what I might have. Which we'll get to eternal life in a second. Which, uh, which what Mary just said is... Uh, uh, Maybe a sub point of what eternal life means. Uh, yeah, so we'll get to that in a second. But so the gospel is not merely a communication of things and that can be known. It is one that makes things happen and is life changing. And this is where the temporal or the chronological realities of hope come in. The dark door of time of the future has been thrown open. The one who has hope lives differently. The one who has hope has been granted a gift of a new life. So having hope means that the future spills over into the present. Really. It really does. You're not imagining. You're not play-acting, although that does help you sometimes. But it really does. So the future spills over into the present and then changes your reality. And how you change in your now is because of hope, which is very different than how we see stories. All right, so, so Christians live in exile here. Our true home is, is in the heavenly home. But even though 
our true home is something that has not been necessarily realized yet, we don't live for the future. We, we live in the present. Which hopefully will change the way we understand stories because has anyone ever told you the ending of a story and you've lost interest in the story? Oh, man. Are you serious? See, what happens, right, is if you know the ending of the story, what happens? Uh, I, don't need to, I don't need to watch the movie. I don't need to read the book. Oh, yeah, okay, Janet, you're, the, you're the, the exception to the rule then, apparently, because I think everybody, don't tell me the ending. I don't want to know. I, I DVR'd it. Is that, is that a right word? I DVR'd it? Okay. Um, I recorded it. Don't tell me how it ends. The thing is, though, is that we, we don't apply that same principle to our own lives, because we already know the ending. Man, I sure want to know what happens in between, right? I mean, which is a control issue, really. Who's involvement with the characters? If you like the characters, you want to find out, okay, that's what happened. How did you get there? Well, that's a different thing. So this is the reality. This is the the blessing of a good story. Is that even if you know the ending, how things play out is just as fulfilling or good or however you want to say it as the ending itself. That's the Christian story. I mean, um, kind of. we didn't really talk about this in the Gospel of Mark, but the Gospel of Mark, kind of percentage-wise, is dominated by the, the crucifixion. There's only 16 chapters, but there is a, um, almost a fourth of the story is about Jesus' last week of his life. So it's all about the ending. And... Um, so that's the thing is that as, as we read the Gospels and the endings themselves, those endings determine how we see the day-to-day. But we don't read the Gospels and say, oh, I've read chapters 13, 14, 15, 16 of the Gospel of Mark. You know that story about the parable of the sower in Mark chapter 4? Yeah, I'm not interested. No, I mean, we don't do that. Okay? I mean, that, that's just silly. But yeah, for some reason, when we, we approach stories, we, we kind of disregard, we... we kind of turn our brain off until the very end. And then we're like, oh, this is how it ends. So, as Christians, we don't do this. We can't ignore the present because hope changes the way we live now. That's very practical. It's a practical way of living. Because if we only live to the end, then our relationship's important. Yeah, maybe. But on a subconscious level, relations aren't, aren't that important because the ending is the most important. Or you could see your relationships in terms of the ending, and i got to get this person to do something. So it, it was a strange way of evangelizing people, too. But that's a tangent. So, okay. So, yes. Yes. I probably wasn't, I don't know. He came from a seminary, I don't know why, I can't remember his name, but he was talking about how we tend to think like we're the person that's like we need a non Christian, and we're the, that person's key to. Right. And he goes, you might just be step two in the path of ten people. Like, so he said, he was just saying how the, on a, like generally when you talk to people who weren't Christian, become Christian. Right. 
Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, yeah. So you're you're not the, and that's important. Actually, um, yeah. You're not the end of the story. Yeah. Well, exactly. Yeah. You have no idea where you are in, in that person's story, and so the yeah. So right, the now. Um. And that's what hope does, right? Hope changes the way we live now because we live without fear. And we hope that this person who comes into our presence, if they were to never come into our presence again, we have hope that God is actually taking care of this person. Obviously, that doesn't mean we ignore our relationship with that person in the moment, but we also see our relationships in a more real way. Anybody see the big kahuna? This, now, now, trust me, you'll understand. Okay, Ke- have you ever heard of Kevin Spacey? Anybody ever heard of Kevin Spacey? Okay, thank you. Danny DeVito? Okay, good. So this is a normal movie. It wasn't a big budget, but it definitely is a normal movie. Fantastic movie. Uh, the Big Kahuna, it's about a... Uh, uh, I think it's, it might be a Chicago company, these guys, these salesmen who go to Wichita for a, like a uh, trade show about industrial lubrications. I, I don't think so. It's, uh... Oh, no, no. It, it's, it actually runs like a play. Most of most of the scenes take place in this uh, this like a uh, hotel suite that these guys bought for their company. It's like a company suite, and they're trying to you know they're trying to sell things to buyers. And it takes place in this hotel suite where these three guys are uh, at this trade show. And the big Kahuna is the big the big account. They need to get the big big Kahuna. And there's three guys. One is the ultimate salesman, although he is kind of towards the end of his career, and he hasn't really quite made it to where he thought it was. Then they have Danny DeVito, who is at the end. Like, he's ready to be down. He's, he's actually ready to commit suicide. He's, he's completely hopeless. But he's a salesman. And uh, the reason why he's real hopeless is because he's given up relating to people as a salesman, which means that he doesn't actually sell anything. But that's a blessing and a curse. And then you have this young man who is the, the tech guy. He's the science guy to answer questions from the customers. And uh, he is a very young man, maybe a couple years out of grad school, uh, and he um, is a Christian. And he enters into this scenario where he wants to... What's his, why is he at the conference? Yeah, explain. Sell, you know, he's got to sell oil, like oil products, petroleum products. But he thinks he's there to convert people to Jesus. So the thing is, though, is that the salesman, Kevin Spacey's character, gets very angry with this young man because he's, they're there to make money. But now we have this third character, Danny DeVito, who is like this great, fantastic character. Because 
Kevin Spacey wants to sell industrial lubricants, and this young man wants to sell Jesus. And Danny DeVito, I, there's this great scene, and we actually ran it as a margin comment. I don't know. The movie came out several years ago. I think it was before my seminary experience. I, I wrote Pastor Ruzik and said, you know, if you want to use it. Um, Danny DeVito says, uh, kid, so he goes up to this young man because this young man actually has a one-on-one meeting with the big kahuna. Kevin Spacey is like, I can't believe it because no one has access to this big kahuna. And this guy has access to the big kahuna because this young man says, you know, how's your family? And at first it sounds really great. Hey, this guy is, you know, is a great Christian. He's, he's going to relate to him as a person. Great. But that's all a bait and switch. And guess what the big kahuna actually then sends him away. Because the big kahuna thought that this, man, this young man actually cared about him. But he was only there to make a sales pitch. Which is why he never meets with a salesperson. So he would never meet with Kevin Spacey, Dan and DeVito, or any other salespeople. This is why he's the big kahuna. He's the big catch. And this guy gets this access because this guy isn't there to talk about industrial lubricants. He's talking about something else. But then at the end of the conversation, the guy sends him packing because he's just another salesman. So what Danny DeVito now has this moment of serenity with this young man because he realizes that I'm not a salesman, and that's fine. Tomorrow's going to be okay. And so he tells the young man, I don't care what you're doing. You could be selling you know, industrial oil, oil lubricants, or you could be selling Jesus. But if you don't talk to a person as a human being, ask them how their family is, what's their past, everything is just a sham. And, and Danny DeVito's realized that he doesn't need to commit suicide because all he's come to, he's come to the conclusion that he's just a human being now, and he's he's actually hopeful. He actually has, has now realized that he doesn't have to sell oil lubricants to have worth and meaning. He can just be who God created him to be. And so that's a, that's a, it's a great, the big kahuna in that whole scenario, obviously it's a great character study and all that, but that moment at the end is a great picture of how our relationships with people are defined by hope, um, which are, we're, we're quite, a, quite a ways away from the, the teaching outline, but that's okay. The, uh, it, actually, it actually sort of is in there towards the end in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 34, where uh, the, Hebrew, the writers of Hebrews make, it has this great play on words in the Greek with the, the hypo or the hippo. But, um, but before we get to that, though, this is important because um, in the New Testament and in the early church, hope is, is fundamentally different. And we mentioned this before, our prayers in the, the chapel... Jesus offers a different hope than what was happening in the early church. There was kind of three characters. Spartacus, which we all know, right, because of Kirk Douglas. Then Barabbas from the Gospels. And then there's another character, Bar Kochba, um, or Simon Bar Kochba, who came after Jesus. But these were all like 
messiahs, in a sense. Spartacus, right, what did he want to do? Free the slaves, but what did he actually want? It? Well, you got to think, I don't know if you guys actually know the real story, but, you know, Kurt Douglas wanted to free the slaves, which that story is told not by the historical narrative, but by um, a Moses narrative. But that's, that's a whole different issue. Not, okay, I mentioned this movie. I want to make sure that people have actually seen I shouldn't. I shouldn't presume, right? Have you heard, everyone heard of that movie, Spartacus? Oh, no, you don't know if you've seen it. Okay, great. That's okay. You haven't seen Big Kahuna. You haven't seen any of the other movies I mentioned, so whatever. So Spartacus, though, is offering, again, another kind of political, um, a, a political reality. Barabbas. You guys know what Barabbas, what did he want to do? Right, He wanted to kick out the Romans, too. He wanted to establish a, 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 a political state, set up the kingdom uh, once again, and then Bar Kochba, the same thing. But he, Bar Kochba actually did. He actually kicked out the Romans for, I don't know, a short amount of time, and then they came in and uh, destroyed everybody. It was pretty nasty. Karin. Yeah, well, you mean Spartacus? No. Oh, okay. Well, I, 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 you're welcome. That's, no one's ever said that to me. Okay. The hope Jesus brings is stronger than the suffering of a slave because it transforms life from, from, and the world from within. And the most dramatic ex- uh, example of that in the early church is actually the book of Philemon. For those who may not know the book of Philemon, uh, there was a, a slave, uh, Onesimus, who uh, uh, escaped from Philemon and actually became an associate and a friend of Paul. And Paul actually, what does he do with the slave? Sends him back. Now, of course, we might say, oh, it wasn't like slavery in the Deep South and, you know, in the 19th century. That's fine, but he was a slave. He had no identity as a, as a person in Roman society. But because his identity was part of something different, his hope was part of something more fundamental and also uh, it, it, more substantive, Paul could send Philemon back and Philemon would go back. I mean, I'm sorry, Onesimus would go back. And, and Philemon, because Paul petitions him as a brother, and it's a real lovely letter um, because of this reality. There's something different going on. There's, there's something. Now, the thing is, though, is that we often associate hope with, hey, you know, everyone, it's easy for those who might be struggling in life, whether because of their socioeconomic life or maybe their own emotional life or, like, the Christian church offers these wonderful things, hope, mercy, forgiveness, compassion. But what's interesting, in the early church, it wasn't just the lower strata, but it was also the ruling class, the upper class, those who had everything that was also coming into the church. Um, and that's because there, there wasn't any hope in the Roman religious life in its various forms, which the mythology, the... Um, kind of the, the philosophical, the divine, because they, they regulated the divine to the unreality. and uh, Anyways, so, you know, we have to think about the modern of equivalence to our own life now. And I would say that our modern equivalence is uh, politics, probably, and science. 
I mean, those are the religions of, I think, of our modern elite, is politics and, and science, or the uh, idea of progress. So we as Christians, we've got to think about that. that could, that's a whole different, that's a whole other Bible study in itself. But this is something where Christians are offering a hope that's even more uh, fundamental than politics or science that can uh, saturate even those things. Because as we find out, hope isn't in the laws of nature, right? It's not an event, but it's in a person. And that's what we get in the catacombs of the early church. There's two, two very popular images in the catacombs. Jesus as a philosopher, and Jesus as the shepherd. The philosopher is not like we see today, like they stay in college and you know, they think deep thoughts. The philosopher of the early church, was, or the early ancient Rome society, was one who, who kind of taught the art of living and dying, like uh, how to live life to its fullest. Yeah, right, that's exactly, a life coach. There you go. It could, yeah, Oprah might be the modern equivalent. I don't know. I didn't think too hard about that. So, yeah, I'm willing to take uh, recommendations. Um, uh, actually, the, the, the um, image of Jesus in the icon as a philosopher oftentimes is, one, he has his hand up like this, which is a, a somewhat like the, the, the blessing. But this is also, the, the two fingers up oftentimes is the, this is how philosophers spoke. So the one who had his hand like this meant, uh, listen to me, I'm the one who's talking now. Sometimes we go like this, right? Okay. So anyways, that's the, um, and you would have maybe a book or, you know, the Bible held up and, yeah, right. Okay, anyways, there could be a variety of jokes about that. Anyway. They didn't have books. They didn't have books. No, no, in the icon, though, they'd have a, the codex. They would have the Word of God. This is Jesus in the icon. Right. You're right, though. Yes, philosophers, yes, yeah. It was an oral society. Yep. Which one? Yes. Right, an anachronism, yeah. Part of the scholars is holding a book. Right. Yep. But, well, you know, I mean, we see that a lot of times in art. Not that we have to get on that tangent, but I, I feel like we should. Um, is that the story of Jesus is timeless, so you can have, you know, the, the whole, like, You'll have Jesus like an ancient Roman crucifixion scene, and then you'll have Renaissance, a Mary dressed in Renaissance clothing, and John, and, you know, Dutch, yeah. You don't see too many, like, modern equivalents, so that, that'd be interesting. Crucifixion with, I don't know, a soccer mom underneath it or something like that. <laughs> yeah, you know, wearing, well, Okay. Then the shepherd. So you have this, this understanding of Jesus as the philosopher, the one who, who teaches living and dying, the hopeful life, the hopeful living, and then the shepherd would be kind of the, 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 the second point of that is the shepherd is primarily the one who leads the one through death. Um, 
So Jesus is the one who gives hope now in life and in death, philosopher and shepherd. Uh, but Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1 is important. That's why I wanted to have you to actually turn to Hebrews. Turn to Hebrews chapter 11. Because now we're going to get into the, the reality of the resurrection in the Gospels. Because you have Jesus who says, touch, you know, touch me. So you have an objective reality happening in the resurrection. And you, so you, you need to have a, an objective reality happening now in your own faith. It's not simply subjective. So that, this is the beauty of, of the whole thing, is that you have this objective reality that works then in, in also in a subjective way. Okay. I, I wrote in there, faith is the hypostasis or stasis of things hoped for, the proof of things not seen. I, that's not how it's translated in my Bible. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, no, but I, I would be surprised if anybody knows what the word hypostasis means. Um, that's a word that's very difficult to translate into English. But um, it's, it's, uh, an, uh, it's an objective thing. It's, it's the substance. I think, I, I forgot to look up the King James Version. Anyone have the King James Version? I think they might say the stuff, the substance. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, uh, the proof of things not seen. So proof, right? So when you go to trial, right, you can't just say, this guy's guilty. Everyone believes, everyone says he's guilty. Does that make him guilty? No, right? You have to have what? You have to have proof. You've got to be able to show it. Is substance? Okay. Uh, which is, that's a, it's a, actually a, a, probably a better translation. Anyways. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the proof of things not seen. Now, assurance and conviction that's in the ESV is not wrong, but it puts the second before the first. Because if you... Why, why am I sure that someone... So let's go back to the trial scenario. How do I know this person's guilty? Or how do I know this person's innocent? Because of the proof. I am sure that this person is innocent because of the proof. So you can't have assurance without proof. And unfortunately, uh, what a lot of people have done with the Christian faith now is excluded this whole kind of objective reality and made it so subjective. And part of the subjectivity of the, the faith is very individualistic now, which goes against the resurrection. Because the resurrection is always in community, right? I mean, that's that's been a topic of our last four weeks. Whoever had their hand up, who had their hand up? Mary. Right. Right now. Th- Right, now the thing is, though, there's a big... Okay, so when we go to trial and we have a, a proof, what can those jurors actually do with that proof? They can deny it, yeah, right. But, so that's where the subjective reality comes in, is that this thing has happened, but you can say, no, it didn't. 
you know, I mean, you know, this is like, which, what color is my shirt? Black, right? Well, everyone in this room could say, nope, it's white. And you're like, no, no, seriously, it's black. And I could have scientists come in and say it's black, but you say, oh, no, it's not, it's, it's white. There's nothing else I can do. Right? I mean, can I speak more clearly? Not really. There's just sometimes you, you can only do what you can do, and then the rest happens within that person, which goes to our conversation earlier, Penny, right? I mean, you, or, uh, Jeanette, both of you guys. <laughs> Jeanette asked a question about, like, how, how can you love someone that's struggling with life? They're, you know, just stuff happening. And I said to, the, I said to her, you, you, you can't change someone, you only can love them. And, and in loving that person, you bring this objective reality up. So someone who's, who's depressed over something, you tell them life can roll on, can move on. You tell them that this is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad. Because God's presence in your life gives you meaning there, there's something else happening. But no matter how much objective proof you give to this person, they can say, no. They can refuse it. So, um, yeah, I mean, that that's, that's goes along with uh, this, this idea of hope, is that the resurrection gives us something real. Gives us hope. Um, proof. Now, where does it come into proof? I actually, we probably want to skip down here because we see the proof in where? People's lives, actually. I mean, we have the gospel here, but we've already established that the, the story itself does not stay within the pages of the, of the book, the Bible, but lives outside that. So where do we see that? Martyrs, missionaries, I think I put aesthetics down, right? You know, people who give up everything. Um, these people know the real substance of life and are the proof for the rest of us. So that is now the story of Jesus coming out of you. Because in First John, I think Pastor Rizek mentioned this this last Sunday, right? John is writing this epistle saying, that, that, that which we bear witness to. And he uses the we. It's not just, it's just not me, Apostle John, but it's, it's us. So there's people there that probably have not seen Jesus like the 12 apostles and those in the resurrection, but that doesn't negate the actual witness of the resurrection itself. And that actually gets played out in Hebrews chapter 10, Verse 34, where the word for property. So what's interesting is people in the congregation of Hebrews have had ta- had everything taken away. That means they've lost their job. They've lost everything of this life, the substance of this life. But yet they actually still now have hope because the substance of their life is not the stuff that they have but it's Jesus himself. It's the faith, it's the hope, it's the presence of Christ. And that's, that's a real fun little kind of two chapters here. 
because then in 36 and 39, you have this, again, hypo, it's this hypo, 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 um, where you have patience. Well, maybe that's what I was talking Who did I mention patience to? Penny. No. Oh, that's right. Okay. So patience now. Patience and hope always go together. And again, I'll talk about loving people, I guess, again. So I mentioned the guy who jumps in the hole last week, I think, or two weeks ago, or whatever it was. Guy jumps in the hole. Or falls into the hole. Oh, no, I can't get out. And then his friend comes and jumps in the hole to lead him out. Well, the guy that can jump in the hole, right, his first response was, what are you doing here? Now we're both in the hole. And he's like, hey, you know what? I know the way out. Well, that's a perfect scenario. But for people that you know who are down in the dumps in their life, they don't want to get out. So what's, what's going to last? Who's going to win that battle? Who, patience. Patience and hope. Because you who have faith and have hope also have patience. And so your patience then is lived out in the uh, relationship that you do have with this one person, or the guy who jumped in the hole or fell in the hole. And that's very important because this is what the resurrection actually does now because I think I wrote this down. Yeah, Jesus communicated the substance of things to come. Think now in terms of the four gospel endings where the three have this kind of future tense Hey, Mark, go to Galilee, then you'll see Jesus. Matthew, um, you know, you're going to go out and, you know, I will be with you. Luke, obviously there's the ascension, but now you have John where he never leaves. So you have, it's looking forward in Christ's presence, synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, with Christ who is present, gospel of John, to the perfecting of his body. So that's all the, the, the story that's unfinished. To his definitive coming, which is now the, the thing that we're actually looking for. The end, of the, the end of the ages, I guess, is how we often talk about it. And the exact opposite in 39 is those who shrink back. Because patience will stay with, will, will expose you know, the light, but the shrinking back will... You lose patience, and you will hide. You will run. So, those who are depressed, down in the dumps, giving up, whatever, they're shrinking back. But what's the great thing? Is that those who have patience is stronger than those who shrink back. Because you can go farther into the hole, but the great thing about Jesus is what? He's always at the bottom. And those who have faith and hope are down there too. So, and, that, and that's the whole point of the resurrection, and that would be in the uh, creed, you know, he, uh, the Apostles' Creed, right? You ever thought about that? He descended into hell. Okay, well, you know, why do we always mention that? It just seems kind of a bummer, man. Why should we mention that he goes into hell? Not only, not yeah, well, not only that though, but. Yeah, right. He, you can come out too. Exactly. So, um, yeah, there you go. All right. Uh, well, so now we go to the eternal life business because now, right, we're patients of the end. What is the end? Eternal life, right? Of course. We all are, are Christians in some form or fashion because of this notion of eternal life. But the question would be, do you really want eternal life? We've all had a pretty good life here, I think. 
So maybe we've kind of experienced, but the question would be, what if you haven't really lived yet? The, the, the notion of eternal life sounds like hell. That's what sounds, I mean. So you think about a person who, who's, um, well, you know, just real simple, an orphan who's starved most of their life, who's been abused, and who has, you know, wondered if they're going to live through the day, and that's been a kind of a constant in their life. The notion of eternal life, that's hard to imagine. They can't figure that out. So um, we have to be kind of slow in our understanding of eternal life. If we look more closely at the notion of eternal life, we have to admit that we really don't know what it is. I'll let you think about that for a little bit. Because I think we've all had this in our life where we know we want something, but we don't know what it is. Yeah, it could be uh, it could be at the restaurant, right? You could say like, I know I want some food, obviously, but I just can't pick. I just can't figure out which one I want. Um, that that would be the most silly. Well, there could probably be a sillier example, but um, there is you know there's other aspects of life where we just know that this isn't the right thing, but we don't know exactly what's going on. But in not knowing, we know that this reality must exist. And because we know this reality exists, that's the hope to which we have. So a very common question I get is, Pastor, what is heaven like? I, I don't know. Um, you know, streets of gold, obviously, and the description, but I don't, I don't know what it's going to be like. Because I can't actually, I, can't, I, I don't know what it is. It, that's, we talked about this a long time ago. That's beyond the horizon. And I only know what's come over the horizon. But I know it's not going to be this. And that is, that's kind of good enough for me right now. But Jesus does talk in the Gospel of John, and I, I wrote down 1622, but there's a whole bunch of other points in the Gospel of John where he... Uh, do you have it opened? Yes. Jeanette, go ahead and read it. I'm going to share that with my friend. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. Yes. It's a good one. Boy. I was, I was thinking. That was, that was good. All right. Sometimes I surprise myself. All right. Good. Um. Right. Right. Yep. Joy is an ocean. Uh, well, yeah, you guys can look that up. Karen. Yeah. So what happened? Just forget about it. Hmm. 
Right. What's the response? Nothing. Oh, you haven't sent it yet. Well, you should. <laughs> right. Actually, uh, Karen brings up an interesting point here about how um, when relationships are somewhat, you know, we, we can't figure out if they're repairable. Uh, like, especially like if we, if we don't make amends before someone dies or we can't get in touch with somebody. What's the great thing about that is because uh, God is the God of the dead, too. And um, one of the great things is our relationships are restored only by God's power in the first place, God's forgiveness. And so the hope that we have, then, is that those relationships are repaired. Or there's, they still can be repaired, which is a whole other Again, that's a whole other Bible study, but uh, the whole notion of our life together with those who are dead. But we're Lutherans, and that's very complicated. But Pastor, this, this verse really, as you say in here, it describes heaven. Right. But is he talking about the future? Or is he talking about now? I think both. Oh, there you go. Good job. This is where the future and the present, right? The future spills into the present, changes our reality. Heaven spills onto earth and changes the way we see things now. Um, we we got we to finish. Or we got to be done. But um, we get to be done. Is that, you just take a look at there. The, the other aspect, too, would be hope and love, which goes with Karin, I guess, neither death nor life. Again, I think we kind of think about neither death nor life will separate us from the love of God. So... That love of God, though, is not... That's why I put uh, the discussion about being individuals first. Our love and our hope is communal. So the love that which we experience is communal. So that love that God has for you is also the love that can be shared. Love, your love for others, can death can't separate that. And uh, that's a whole other... Flush that out. That's, that's fantastic. But there's a long quote here. That's actually from the Pope. He, he's, uh, he's, this is, he's got a really nice thing. So that's really fun to read. But okay. All right, well, we didn't get to learn. We, the settings for learning and practicing hope, there's three of them. Prayer, action, slash suffering, and judgment. But we, we didn't have enough time to get there. You think about that. You think about that all summer. All right, guys, well, we will rendezvous in September sometime. I've had a pleasure teaching you.